This has never been about changing the world with technology. This has always been about liquidity. And there's wonderful narratives that can go along when you have these big rallies up and then, you know, wonderful narratives on the way down when you're fighting the world. But the reality is that you have to know the source of your returns. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen. For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been the opportunity to speak to a huge range of extraordinary investors from all around the world. In this series, I have invited one of them, namely Alan Dunn, to host a series of in-depth conversations on the topic of what it takes to be a world-class allocator. In today's world, portfolio construction is fast moving to the top of the agenda of many investors as they try to analyze and understand the riskiness of their portfolios. And with ever-increasing uncertainty around the globe, being well-diversified across many different strategies and themes in your portfolio can mean the difference between ruin and survival when the next crisis emerge. The aim of these conversations is to try and understand the experiences that have influenced these highly specialized allocators and the processes they follow to harness the best returns for their clients so that we can all become better informed investors. And with that, Please welcome Alan Dunn. Thanks very much for the introduction, Niels. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Cameron Dawson. Uh, Cameron is Chief Investment Officer with New Edge Wealth in Connecticut, United States. New Edge Wealth is a $8 billion RIA serving high net worth, ultra high net worth and family office investors. Prior to joining New Edge, Cameron was Chief Market Strategist at Fieldpoint Private, we're delighted to have Cameron with us. She's a frequent speaker on the road these days, particularly on CNBC, I think. I think I heard her mm -hmm. yesterday. Cameron, great to see you today. How, how is everything in Stamford, Connecticut? Oh, it's good. It's, uh, it's a muggy day here in August, but uh, very happy to be here with you. Good stuff. Well, we normally start the uh, conversation just to tr frame things a little bit by getting our guests to talk a little bit about their background and how they ended up in the investment industry and their route to their current role. So could you give us a bit of a background on yourself? Sure, I probably have uh, one of the the least orthodox ways of finding my way into investments because at the ripe age of 15, I decided to quit normal high school and become a full-time ballet dancer and homeschool myself online, got injured, uh, then said, I guess I should probably go to school, found my way into economics, loved it, stayed and did business school because when I graduated, it was in the midst of the great financial crisis. And so I was lucky enough that the business school was... Uh, 
offering scholarships based on GMAT scores. And so I stayed and, and once I got into business school said, I'm kind of bored with all these soft skills. What's the hardest thing I can take? And somebody said security analysis and portfolio management. I took it. I was hooked and said, "There's I, I have to do this. I didn't have a lick of, of finance uh, experience and didn't have any connections. Was very fortunate that the alumni network at my school, I went to Rollins, kind of opened things up to me. And I actually found my way into Bank of America, my first job in the industry, uh, uh, through the CFA Society of Orlando. I applied for a scholarship, and they got me in. Uh, And that was 10, 11 years ago now. And spent two years at Bank of America working in uh, high net worth uh, private wealth management as as an analyst for them, and then moved up. And I was the lead industrials analyst for the buy side at B of A uh, in our chief investment office for six years, so a total of eight years at B of A. Then, then moved over to Fieldpoint uh, to broaden out and become more of a generalist market strategist. And it, that led it, it you know, lends itself very well to the industrials background. Um, I know we're not uh, uh, on video today, but I have a cat hat on because uh, industrials will always be in my blood. Very cyclical sector that uh, is, you know, it, it teaches you a lot about very quick cycles in, in the marketplace. So uh, then that you know that market strategy view led itself into t- stepping into the CIO role, which has just been absolutely extraordinary at New Edge. Um, it's it's such an exciting company with great people, and so I'm thrilled to have been there for about four months now. Good stuff, and obviously it's uh, focused on the wealth management sector. I guess could could you give us a sense on? I suppose the types of portfolios you run, I guess is it's a long term focus, um, possibly multi generational wealth. Any kind of constraints or anything unusual about how you have to uh, manage the portfolios for this particular um, segment of the investment industry? Sure. Well, I think that that this market within investments, it matters actually less what index returns are, and it matters more what you keep at the end of the day. So that does create some constraints and also some different avenues when we think about our investments. For example, taxes are really important to our investors. These are individual investors that are usually in the highest tax bracket. So where you might want to make certain decisions on a short-term basis because you have high conviction in, in the performance of one asset class or another, uh, you may not make that decision on an after-tax basis. Uh, but it also means that when we think about asset allocation, we're also thinking about asset location as well, making sure that the right assets are being held in the right places. And it also means that we have a very long-term view of things, uh, meaning that if we are thinking about multi-generational wealth or money that people might not tap into uh, for many decades, the end result is you're going to invest it very differently uh, than if you were just trying to maximize three, six months, six-month returns. And, and it also leads into our investment process a lot because we 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 have to think about after tax after fee returns and we're very sensitive to that and find that you know that after after tax after fee alpha um, can be just as important as your traditional investment alpha uh, mostly if, you, if you're doing it right so we, we we have to take a very broad approach and probably an integrated approach with wealth strategy as well 
meaning that investments in wealth strategy can't uh, can't exist on their own. And it's a it's a, a very robust way of, of of looking at the world, but it's what's needed for for these high net worth, ultra high net worth clients. Very good. You touched on how excited you are to be stepping into the CIO role at this point in time. And I guess it is both uh, fascinating, exciting and challenging. You know, it's been a year so far where Bonds and equities have been down, so it's it's and you know probably the most interesting macro environment we've had for for a number of years. Um, so you know, I guess starting from from that perspective, you know, inflation's been probably the buzzword in the markets for for the last 12, 12 months or so, if not longer. You know, when you're thinking about portfolios and asset allocation, how has this tough environment with you know unexpectedly high inflation and a difficult environment for traditional assets how how have you been navigating that for for your clients yeah, well, the, the the first point of the market volatility is the reason why I didn't get a vacation in between gigs. So okay. I, I ended one job on a Friday and, and I said, you know, these markets are too interesting. I'm going to start right on Monday um, because it is. It's one of the most fascinating times that we've been in, you know, to see the the worst start of a year for the for the bond market ever on record to start this year. At the same time, you've had um, a fairly rapid and, and pronounced equity route that is is even more pronounced depending on on which index you look at within the U.S. What type type of asset, you know, certainly investors that thought that they were going to get some kind of diversification from their standard 60-40 portfolio uh, didn't experience that at all this year. And the question is, you know, where do you go from here? And I, I I think back to when inflation really first started kicking into high gear in, um, it was really April of 2021. That's the first month that we had when inflation uh, on the CPI basis went significantly above. It hit four, about 4% that month above the Fed's 2% target. And what's really interesting is that if you had called the inflation right and said, we're going to have runaway inflation for X, Y, and Z reasons, and, and here's how I'm going to structure my portfolio. I'm going to go short long bonds, meaning that I think that 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 long bonds are going to get hit pretty hard because yields have to rise. I'm going to go long gold. I'll go long other kind of maybe digital gold like a Bitcoin or something because as, a, as an inflation hedge. Um, you were really wrong <laughs> for, for the first nine months of that inflation experience. Uh, and assets did not behave in the way that I think people expected them to. And it's and I think this gets back to what the real drivers of, of portfolio returns are and that that you know, we have had so few true really high inflation experiences to extrapolate the short period of time from, uh, for example, from the 70s into today and expect asset to returns to be similar, I think is misleading. And one of the big differences that to get a bit more granular, I think, is the dollar. So if we go back to the 70s, we had a rapid 30% depreciation of the dollar in the early 70s as Nixon took us off the gold standard. And that certainly fed into the inflationary experience on uh, that 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 the U.S. had at that time. And actually, it's a little bit more akin to what Europe is experiencing now, the, the, this dual-headed monster of both a currency crisis as well as a as an energy crisis. But that 
that weak dollar has been something that's defied expectations this year. So, or really all through 2021, a lot of people were calling for the dollar to be very weak in early 2021 because of twin deficits. And that simply did not happen. The dollar was really strong for a few reasons. The Fed was, was, um, you know, still, you know, still very easy, but I, I guess it was, it was somewhat less easy than the ECB and the BOJ. But dollar positioning had also gotten really short in early 21. And so as we saw the dollar strengthen all that year, what it did is it, it kind of put downward pressure on, on things like like gold prices that you would have expected to do well in an inflationary environment. You also have to consider things like real yields for gold as well. But I think that that what we get back to and to get to the gist of your question is how do you position portfolios in this high inflation world? And we don't have that many parallels, like I said, to extrapolate from. And I think that those averages of saying, oh, well, this is what assets did in high inflation can be very misleading because we never have have an average experience. So my preference is you know, to to um, you know, maintain portfolios that are that are very balanced and put in some kind of hedges in areas that are uh, that I think can benefit from an inflation experience. So a simple example is you know, we we've kept our overweight to energy all this year. And even through the the route that we had in uh, in the summer months, where energy stocks sold off by like twenty five percent in a very short period of time, but at that point we we decided to keep the overweight for the simple reason that it is a hedge on the portfolio in the event that oil prices kick back into high gear again if they were to start moving much higher, and it's a cheap way to get that hedge. It's trading at a little over seven times earnings. So let's say that for some unforeseen reason, oil prices start skyrocketing and instead of gasoline being on a continued downtrend as it had has been since mid-June of this year, like 75 days consecutively, if that starts to move in the other direction, we would expect it to be really bad for other parts of our portfolios. But at least we have this balance and this exposure to energy that can help offset some of those headwinds um, that we that you know, could amount if we if we do see energy prices move actually move higher. And as I said, we're not paying a lot for that kind of hedge because we're getting at getting it for a very cheap valuation. At the same time, um, that you know, expectations have have you know been pulled in quite a bit since you know since the big route that we've had. Good stuff. So, so obviously you're thinking with, with energy there in terms of kind of sectoral tilts, I guess, within the asset allocation. And then from an asset allocation perspective, do you, I mean, how active is the asset allocation approach? Do you kind of go radically underweight equities or bonds? Or is it, as you say, a reasonably balanced approach with a, with kind of tactical t- tilts overlaid or, or I guess overall kind of What's the investment philosophy that underpins the whole asset allocation process? Yeah, it, it gets back to the to the first answer of of that that we discussed, which is that taxes are important for our investors. So as much as we would love to to do this like max underweight when we thought markets would be really weak, uh, we have to consider that cap, capital gains taxes are, are a significant drag on portfolio returns. And so what we start with is we start building a portfolio from the core out. And the core of the portfolio is, are the parts of the portfolio that you don't have to touch very much, with the idea meaning that 
I want names that have really good downside capture and names that that are somewhat defensive in a downturn. Not your not your prototypical classical defensive names, but those that, you know, like saying, oh, I'm only going to own utilities or staples. Those tend to have more episodic volatility to the upside, meaning that they only have periods of outperformance when everybody is way too scared. We prefer instead a much broader approach, which is quality, meaning that we'll, we'll build this, this core of quality. And the whole power behind quality is that when you own those names, you you and and obviously we're looking at these on a constant basis to make sure that they remain high quality, but they shouldn't retrace all of their gains from the last up cycle. Because that's 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 what kills returns is that yes, you can have this big, huge up movement, big, huge up cycle, but if you have to sell at the top, pay a lot of cap gains and or retrace all of your prior gains, that's a problem. So we call them core compounders because the idea is that yeah, we're going to have volatility through cycles, but if we own these core parts of our names, core parts of our portfolio and names that are high quality, we can ride out those cycles and not have to tinker with it very much. And then what you can start building it from that core is, is that's really the growth part of your portfolio. That's the long-term uh, view of your portfolio. Of you want to hit a certain return target over the very long run on an after-tax, after-fee basis. And then we can be a bit more opportunistic with our tactical tilts on the outside. There's going to be times when beta low quality um, uh, performs really well. We've been in a two-month period where that was the case. Uh, you, you, you can layer in beta to that outside. Maybe you have higher income needs and we can layer in income um, as well kind of to complement that core. And then it comes in the question of of where do you go go outside for two other kind of important considerations for investors. The first one is is low correlation and the first one is and the second one's return enhancement. And you know that's when we we have to be very well integrated into the wealth strategy because if a client um, uh, has a very long-term view, a very long-term need for, for the assets, having low correlation isn't necessarily that valued, valuable to them. And low correlation really is only valuable in a liquidity context, meaning that if something has low correlation, the whole idea behind it is it helps dent portfolio volatility without giving you having to give up so much on the return front. But if you have a liquidity event, say something happens and you need that money, but you and then you can't sell the things that are doing well, then that correlate that low correlation actually really hasn't done much for you. Um, mostly, if you have to sell assets that have been beaten up and are trading, um, you know, at lows, and that's you know that's how you do the reverse of compounding through cycles. So we th- we think about this this risk budgeting in these these low correlation assets. So your traditional kind of hedge fund assets, um, where well, we can talk about private equity venture a little bit differently. That that's kind of phantom correlation just because of of um, there's some parts of it that are not correlated um, but the broad asset classes tend to to track mostly as they've emer- as they've matured uh, traditional uh, public market returns maybe with a little bit of an illiquidity premium. So then, so once you've identified your need for low correlation based on the liquidity needs of that of the of the portfolio, 
then you can pay, you can pivot to return enhancement. And that's where we look for private equity, venture capital, some hedge fund uh, options in order to, to provide return enhancement, mostly because we see ourselves in a lower return world in public markets based on equity valuations, equity positioning, and where yields are today. And in that return enhancement, you know, our, our ethos and one of the things we think makes us as powerful is that we sit in a sweet spot of size as a firm, meaning that we are small enough that we can, uh, we can look at deals and funds that are more niche and have a, a uh, we think, a better probability of of alpha and outsized returns versus big mega funds, which you know, the the whole idea is that over time, you know, alphas decay into betas, meaning that your alpha, your market outperformance um, over time gets whittled away and just ends up looking like beta or the market return over time. And, and we think that that's what's been happening to a lot of these bigger funds. So it's our preference to look at small funds that our large competitors would never be able to look at, A, because it wouldn't be worth their time, mm. and B, because they would just eat up the the liquidity of it too quickly. If you're with a large fund or a large firm allocating $2 trillion of client assets, you're not going to look at a $100 million or a $200 million fund. But we'll look at it all day long. And that doesn't mean that we're we're going with sub-tier players. We're going with very, we're going with big established players, but we're preferring to play on the smaller side of funds. There are bigger funds that we participate in, but the stuff that gets us really excited is that differentiated niche things. And that's where we think we actually can deliver on that enhanced return part of portfolios. Okay, interesting. So it sounds like the, the, a focus on quality in the core, um, but but at the same time, in traditional assets, an environment that, that looks a bit more challenging than maybe we've seen going back a few years, given this kind of low return um, environment. When you think about the portfolios from, from kind of a risk management perspective, and you touched on the 1970s and, you know, which was in your sense, obviously it's not exactly the same this time. There are parallels, but, but slightly different. But if we were to go into, you know, a very different macro environment for the next 10 years and you had obviously, you know, maybe surprisingly high inflation on a consistent basis and, you know, a a lost decade for, 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 for equities like we had maybe in the 2000s and I guess in real terms it was the same in the 70s. Um, is do you have kind of uh, do you think that the, the quality can out, out kind of overcome that kind of environment, or do you look to those return enhancements uh, kind of strategies uh, as the thing that would take the portfolios through in that type of environment? Yeah, I think well the first the first step is expectation setting, and I think that's something that that we have to do as advisors or investment managers is to expectation set, and to really be clear that starting points matter. When your bull market in equities in two thousand and ten or two thousand nine kicks off, and you're trading at twelve times earnings, allocations to stocks are at near record lows. If you look at 
measures like AAII indices, you um, uh, equity market cap as a percentage of GDP is very low. You look at um, overall sentiment being washed out. You know, people have just given up on the asset class overall. That's how you deliver. That starting point is how you get 10 years of returns that were more than double the long run average. And so now we're in an environment that's the exact reverse. Valuations are high. Allocations to stocks have on an, on an institutional basis are, are light right now. But if we look from a household basis, which tends to be more impactful for forward returns, those still remain very elevated. They come, they've come off their highs in this latest route, but certainly they remain elevated, not like they were back in 08 and 09. And so what that speaks to is you're going to, like, if these relationships hold, it kind of get average at best, which means that instead of 14% compounded on a 10-year basis, you're looking at 7 to 8% in a best case scenario. Then the next step of that, and this gets to your point about the 70s, um, which is that how do you actually get to that 7 to 8%? Because there's a lot of ways to get to average, meaning that you could have a big market crash um, for the first two years and then make up for it as you go on in the later years. You could have a big, huge equity bubble bull market run and then a crash that causes you to 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 have those average returns or you could be like you were in the 70s where you were essentially flatlined from 1968 until 1982 um, and you just oscillated around a wide band and if in each of those scenarios you know, that's why it's it's important to to not get too married to these long-term perspectives about low returns and to stay tactical and nimble because how you invest is very different based on each of those of those scenarios. Let's take the last one though because I think that that's actually really interesting because if we're in a world where we think we could be oscillating around some directionalist band it necessitates a few things. It necessitates active management and active management, not just from security selection, which I'll get to in a second, but also in, in, um, kind of overall allocations, you might want a little bit more of a buy low, sell high approach to to those bands. Meaning that, you know, once you, 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 you know, you kind of have rules that, you know, outside of a, you know, if you're if you're thinking you're somewhat sideways, um, that you trim equities after, you know, at certain levels and you buy at other levels that maybe that can be helpful. Again, that introduces the need to be very tax efficient, though, because compare that to the last world we were in where you could just throw everything into SPY and close your eyes. And at the end of the at the end of 10 years, you had 14 percent compounded returns. But the other part that you're asking about, which I think is really fascinating, which is is um, where we have to be very careful about quality investing in that core investing, which is the lessons that we learned from the Nifty 50. 
And the Nifty 50 was this group of stocks that that stole the hearts and minds of investors in the late 60s. And Professor Jeremy Siegel is the one who did the seminal work on, on, on these names. And essentially, these were the stocks that you could buy today and hold forever because they were the best names out there. They were new technology. They were exciting. Um, and everything from IBM to 3M to Kodak. Um, which when you when you look back at that time, the conclusion that Professor Siegel came to is that, yeah, these stocks that were supposed to be the great, amazing uh, you know, uh, future stocks, they had become so overvalued that even though they delivered better earnings growth through the next decade, they had much lower returns because you were already pricing in all of that benefit into the into the current years and i and so we have to be careful about valuations when we're thinking about quality and core because a lot of things that might screen as very good quality if you don't have valuation discipline it can all work against you and and it, it's a it's a great lesson for investors in thinking about growth anyway which is that if you price the world of growth into today's valuation, even when that growth materializes, you don't get any benefit from it because you've already given the company credit. And and not to get into an individual name, but I think we can we can we can see this with Zoom that reported last night. I was looking at some of the numbers, and it, it's such a it's such an important lesson for investors. At its peak in 2020, Zoom was trading at 70 times sales. 70 times sales and and its market cap was 170 billion dollars and it was obviously pricing in a huge period of revenue growth because of all of these shifts and changes happening and guess what they got it revenues are now six times higher today than they were pre-pandemic but the stock is down materially that 170 billion dollar market cap is now less than 30 billion and it's trading at six and a half times sales and so valuation though it's not helpful in the short run valuations can go high and stay high they can go low and stay low they are so important for long run investors to get to lo- to to be able to to forecast long run returns and so you know it, it's they're not a great timing tool and they can't help you make a decision necessarily today um, mostly on an aggregate basis but we look at them very closely and and study them a great deal because they have so much impact on what your forward return experience will be Interesting. Well, you touch on some few themes there that I think are really interesting. One, as you say, um, we talked about the 1970s, and as you rightly point out, uh, we had these oscillations, you know, for for the markets. And I think that's one of the things that strikes me. You say in the 1970s to people, and as, as I said, you know, tough decade for equities, but obviously... That forgets the point that within that whole period we had some 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 big rallies, you know, um, uh, and 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 you know probably three or four, at least three significant down moves in the equities. So, so 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 tactical is important. And then secondly, from a valuation perspective, I think you raise an interesting point there as well, because obviously you talk about Nifty Fifty, and I guess we had the same phenomenon back in two thousand. You know, people talked about stocks that you had to own back then as well, and again in twenty. 2020, 2021, you know, stocks, you know, people talked about the 
the uh, the fang stocks as kind of bond replacements, you know, because the, you know the, the certainty of of earnings it, it was the argument. So um, it is interesting that that we have these recurring cycles, um, and as you say, valuations matter. And I guess when you think about valuation, you know, there, that's probably maybe where the macro can meet the micro to an extent. You know, if you think about, you've got the earnings side and the, the, the multiple side, and obviously the multiples are going to be heavily influenced by, by the discount rate. So again, you know, how do you, as a strategist, as a CIO, get comfortable? You know, a lot of people saying, uh, well, if we went into a, a different macro environment, margins could come down a lot, wages could be a lot higher, the, the E side of things might be under pressure. And then obviously what we've had in the markets over the last uh, year, couple of years, is the discount rate has jumped up. You know, 10-year yields have gone from half a percent up to, say, two and a half, three and a half percent. So if if that, you know, again, from a valuation perspective, what's the right rate on that side? So you've got a lot of moving parts. It's one thing to say valuations are discipline around valuation, but how do you get comfort that you're, I guess, building in enough of a margin of error given that really uncertain macro environment? Yeah, I it's it's such a good question and I'm going to be dangerously reductive here uh if I if I can. So in a very simple way, I think that you have to get the macro manufacturing employment consumption cycle to forecast earnings. But then you have to get the liquidity cycle to forecast valuations. Meaning that valuations uh, are sometimes in response to what the earnings picture is and can talk about when, when that happens. But overall, valuations are really driven by liquidity, meaning that when liquidity is becoming more abundant and accelerating higher, and you can crudely measure this by looking at money supply growth. Um, there's far better measures by by some of the the sell side research shops on the street where they they measure excess liquidity in the environment. So essentially, how much liquidity do you have in excess of of what's really needed for underlying growth? And when you have lots of excess liquidity, and that excess liquidity is becoming even greater that supports higher valuations. Now, the inverse is true, meaning that when liquidity is getting tighter, that supports lower valuations. And I think that this is true in the world of of quantitative easing in the post-great financial crisis world, because you can see it much more clearly during those times, which is that if you looked at the periods of, of multiple compression that we had from 2010 until 2000 and let's call it end of, of 2020, each of those periods of multiple compression, which were weak markets, were periods that coincided with the Fed either not providing as much market support as the market wanted, um, such as in 2010, 2011. Um, we had a gap there between quantitative quant QE rounds that you know coincided with the issues around the European debt crisis, which led to you know, weak markets and a lot of multiple compression. 
You had the 2014 through tw- early 2016 period, which was taper tantrum into into um, uh, the the balance sheet. Or we had taper tantrum, then the actual taper, and then the start of interest rate hikes um, in in late 2015, which caused a lot of multiple compression. Then you had the 2018 period, which had quantitative tightening as well as interest rate hikes, multiple compression. And so what is kind of confounding to people sometimes is how you can see stocks be so strong when earnings are so weak. And the great example of that is 2019. 2019 was actually a pretty tough year from an earnings standpoint. You saw earnings decelerate materially. You saw issues with margins. Um, you saw the PMI uh, decelerate quite significantly, the industrial or the manufacturing purchasing managers index. Yet stocks had a gangbusters year. And the reason they had a gangbusters year is because, well, positioning was light. You had that swoon in late 2018. But because liquidity was becoming more abundant. You saw money supply growth actually reaccelerate in late 2018. And then what happened is you said it's all the Fed actually cut interest rates. And through that time, money supply growth started reaccelerating. And so when like to get it back to this main point, you know, you can forecast earnings perfectly. But if you ignore the liquidity cycle, if you ignore the path of the Fed, you can get the multiple wrong. And thus get the stocks wildly wrong. And so I think that we have to balance those two things where you know, what ends up happening is you go, okay, I can have a pretty dire outlook on earnings, but if I think the Fed's going to come in and save the day, I need to put that earnings outlook to the, to the side because the multiple trounces earnings any day. Now, we've been in a world where um, multiple compression is is what needs to happen because liquidity is getting tighter. And it's been one of the reasons why we were doubtful about this very recent rally, because what we saw is multiples expand materially. They went up 20% off of the June lows. And yet there were really no indications that liquidity was going to start becoming more abundant, meaning that the Fed wasn't really sending any signals um, that they would like to see money supply growth reaccelerate, which meant that this multiple expansion that we got uh, really wasn't founded on anything but just a positioning kind of recalibration. And to kind of tie a bow on it, I think there's only three reasons why you should you should pay more than 20 times for earnings on on stocks. And we, maybe we can talk that maybe that's a 21 times because of the changing in the constitution of, of the S&P 500, more tech names, higher quality companies, you know, better cash flow, better return on invested capital. Fair and fine. But, but let's say it's 20, 21 times. The three reasons. The first one is if earnings are so bad that you pay a high multiple for today's earnings because you know they're going to grow a lot. That's partially what happened in 2020. 20, well, like 20, yeah, 2019, 2020, but, but, but really 2020, you, you, you collapse earnings so you can pay a high multiple from it, not to bring the cat hat back into the story, but cyclical stocks, they trade with the multi, their, their multiples are always inverse of their, of their earnings, meaning that you put the lowest multiple on the highest earnings at the peak of the cycle, because you know, earnings are going to decelerate, but then you put the highest multiple on the lowest earnings because you know, they're about to, to really 
really take off and accelerate to the upside. So you 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 can pay a lot for earnings if earnings are really depressed. That I mean, and and, and the true holy grail is when earnings are depressed and valuations are low. And that's what gets that that's what makes returns so powerful coming out of a recession. Everybody's scared, so they're putting low valuations on things at the same time that earnings are depressed. So the second reason why you would pay a lot of more than 20 times is because of Fed liquidity. If the if the the Fed is flooding the zone with liquidity, you can pay a lot for those earnings because you have all that excess liquidity. It's accelerating. Now that can be ephemeral because as the Fed the Fed giveth, they can taketh away. Um, so you have to be aware that that multiples can then compress. But if if you're if you have the scenario like you had in 2021, where yeah, the money supply growth started decelerating and you saw multiples start falling, but if your earnings were so compressed from 2020 as they were, we had 50% earnings growth in in, in 2021. That offset a lot of multiple compression, which is why we could have such powerful uh, returns in 2021 when everybody thought it might be, including myself, be a much more muted year. So you can't underestimate how much earnings can then offset that multiple if you really are coming out of a depressed period. The last and final point, I know this is long-winded, but the last and final reason why you would pay more than 20 times is if you're in a bubble. And the funny thing about bubbles is that um, they, the best returns happen once you've identified that you're in a bubble, right? Like it's sort of like if you can't beat them, join them. But it's a pretty dangerous game to play because what happens on the other side of bubbles is crashes, meaning that you can see these big surges higher and multiples that stay very elevated for a long period of time. But <laughs> you know that on the other side of that uh, could come a great deal of pain. And, and this, uh, you know, this whole discussion of earnings and multiples and everything is the other reason why talking about that pathway to lower forward returns is so important um, because your return experience during that time, whether you have a crash to start or a bubble to start or just flat returns overall, um, it, it, you, that's when you have to be aware of the earnings cycle from the macro standpoint and the liquidity cycle for the valuation. So, so just thinking about that, maybe, I mean, obviously, um, people in the markets tend to be very focused on the liquidity cycle on, on a kind of one, two, three-month time horizon from those tactical tilts. But, I mean, even looking at it over the next one to two years, we've already been in the midst of a tightening cycle that's probably surprised people um obviously 75 basis point rate hikes nobody was talking about those a year ago so so that's fair to say how do you see that side of things playing out um over the next kind of couple of years are you you know would you have confidence that that inflation will be will come back under control and uh, things will be all okay again or, or what are your thoughts yeah, it's funny. You, you know, nobody was expecting the these seventy five basis points hike, including myself. I remember I was I was speaking with a, a friend named Kenny Polcari over the summer, and we were prepping for a a, a podcast. And he's like, "The the Fed's going to raise rates <laughs> rapidly in twenty twenty two. And I was like, "No, Kenny, you're wrong. <laughs> like, you don't know." And and lo and behold, uh, here here we are. And and uh, you know, one of the reasons I I you know, the 
the reason is that the yield curve was already so flat at the end of 2021, meaning that, you know, how much wiggle room did the Fed actually have before they caused, um, you know, greater economic pain? And what, you know, what became apparent is that this this wild card of the energy issue that showed up, um, certainly, you know, from the, from the Ukraine crisis, certainly caused um, uh, a kind of an added uptick in the inflation. But I don't think that we can lay it all on on the, you know, lay it all on the energy uh, market because at the end of the day, we're now at oil prices that are back to pre-Ukraine invasion levels. So, you know, how much are we really seeing um, today's inflation forces uh, being the result of just that that kind of black swan event? And I think, you know, to get to the point of the people who did expect the Fed to, to raise rates really quickly last year, and they were very prescient, is that, you know, and, and we had been talking about this, which is that, you know, housing prices prices were going to be the big um were going to be the big issue. Um you'll like this. I I during the Euro, during the euros last year I wrote a paper called It's Coming Home Prices um which my my UK friends said curse the curse the uh, the England team from from not taking home the euros. I'm sorry about that. Um but but this notion that that we were starting to see some of these really sticky drivers of inflation take off and move to levels that were far higher than um, uh, what we had been seeing really for the last two, three decades. And so what what's happened is that you've had this small pocket of inflation drivers that were one-offs related to the pandemic. And for various reasons, they have metastasized to the rest of the economy. And now you have wage growth that's running at 6.7% using the Atlanta Fed wage tracker. You have housing um, components within the CPI running at 5.7%. You have sticky components of inflation, meaning um, those components that tend to go high and stay high, they don't move around very much running at 40-year highs. You have the trimmed mean CPI, which essentially takes the the overall readings of all the components of the CPI and throws out extreme readings on the top end and the bottom end in order to get a sense of, of so you're not skewed by a few outliers. And it kind of measures inflation breadth, meaning that if your inflation is very high um, in that trimmed mean, it's not just being pulled up by one or two uh, one-off items. All of these things are at 30, 40-year highs which really speaks to the challenge the Fed is going to have to really get inflation back down to their 2% target because you have these these very elevated factors. Now, there's been a lot of people coming out over the last few months saying, yes, well, you know, there are parts that are transitory. And that is very true. And the, probably the most transitory of all the prices is in the durable goods side of things. Durable goods had this, this uh, dual storm where you had supply chains severely disrupted by the pandemic at the same time that you had demand surge to levels that, that were out of any economic projection. And the end result was that you had durable goods prices and demand get pulled forward into 2020 and 2021. And they hit a peak, those prices running at 20, almost 20% year over year at the beginning of this year. That's already started to moderate. 
it's now, if you look at the durable goods components of the CPI, it's now about 8%. And it's likely that they go back into deflation. You know, essentially, you look at these big purchases, cars, grills, furniture, that type thing that's durable goods related. Um, it's likely that that those prices, given the fact that there has been so much pull forward, um, you see much lower inflation. But again, that's a smaller portion of the CPI. So even if we start seeing those things roll over, you have this services kind of of, of stickiness at the same time of, of, of housing issue stickiness. And housing prices lag housing activity data by 6 to 12 months. But then the housing components of the CPI lag the housing prices by 12 months. So though you are seeing weaker housing activity today, we could be talking about 18 to 24 months before it shows up in the CPI data. Now, if it's clear that you're starting to see a lot of deflation in things like rent, for example, which we are not seeing at all, but if it's somewhat clear, maybe the Fed can call victory um, once we're on a path that we start seeing it moderate. But we are so far away from seeing an inflection point in those sticky factors that that's why I find it really difficult to imagine that the Fed would be eager to cut rates in March of 2023 unless we had an incredible liquidity crisis that caused a great deal of economic weakness and a spike in unemployment. But if we have this this kind of soft, like that somewhat soft, softish landing, I mean, you look at the PMI numbers today, it doesn't look all that soft. I guess but, that's the thing. Um, I mean, what, what would soft look like? Um, or, I mean, what's, what's acceptable in terms of an increase in unemployment? Is this, uh, I think, Powell alluded to, some Fed research was it that that they thought Nauru might have been five and a half percent, although nobody knows, and then it might have to go above there. So if you're going from three point three and a half percent to 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 six and a half, say, is a three percent rise in unemployment is that acceptable? Do you think they would continue to hold rates in the face of that kind of a recession? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, probably if you went from three to six, they would they would want to cut rates. I mean, if I if we go back to the 2015, 2016 scenario, it's probably one one economic episode that that should be talked about more because I maybe because I was on the you know the the front lines of it covering you know the industrial side of things where we were um, you know dealing with the fallout in the energy crisis but we got pretty close to having a a deeper recession at that time and that's because we had had a lot of incremental employment growth from the energy related uh, parts of the economy uh, and a lot of manufacturing growth from it and what happened is that all ground to a halt starting in the summer of 2014 uh, when when the dollar started to take off quite materially, um, uh, when the Fed actually started tapering its balance sheet. The dollar took off because the Fed was being tighter than the ECB and the BOJ who were still doubling down on easing. But that ended up being a fairly soft landing because 
because you didn't see it bleed out into the broader economy. And we were all sitting there, you know, kind of from the cyclical perspective going, oh my gosh, the world is ending. I mean, my companies thought the world was ending and that it was just a matter of time before everything looked like 2008, 2009 again, because it was that bad. But it didn't bleed out. Consumption stayed fine. And it's a question of would it have bled out? Um to the rest of the economy, if the Fed had continued to tighten policy, they hiked rates once in late 2015. And then when Yellen came out in uh, February of 16 and said, oh, wait, OK, we're not going to hike rates three times. We believe you guys. The market's pretty bad and it's it, it can't tolerate this. Then everything started to recover. Sentiment got better and you started seeing activity again. It took a couple months for companies to start feeling better about things. But, you know, that was kind of the, 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 the soft, it, it was a softish landing. But the only reason why the Fed was able to pivot at that point is because inflation was non-existent. So, so you have this, this scenario where if the Fed, and, and we've been thinking about this a lot, which is that the Fed has to ask itself uh, and address the question of how much of this inflation is their fault. Because the answer to that question tells you how willing they will be to cut rates in the face of weaker growth. If the Fed thinks that inflation is not their fault and that they didn't contribute to the upside surprise that we saw in inflation, then if they see unemployment go to 5%, 6%, then yeah, they probably will be become much more accommodative because of the weakness you're seeing in the economic growth. But if they think that inflation is their fault, they're going to be concerned of repeating the sins of Arthur Burns, which is you hike rates in the face of high inflation in 1974, and then you uh, see growth sputter, unemployment ticks up, so you cut rates. But then inflation comes back and it rears its ugly head and you hike rates again and then you have to cut rates and it was that stop-go policy and it was all over the place. And what ended up happening is you cemented a decade of inflation. And so if the Fed is concerned that they will be contributing to inflation if they cut rates, let's say sometime next year because, because growth is weaker – then they might be a lot less willing to to actually deliver on that easing. And I think we have to be, you know, we we have to listen very closely to Jackson Hole to get a sense of of how much culpability they think that they have had in this whole inflationary episode. Very good. You touched on, you know, return enhancers as being part of the philosophy and you also mentioned, you know, the importance of active management. And particularly in, in this current environment where we might have this kind of broad trading range and much more tactical opportunities. And obviously that's part of your remit as CIO in terms of those tactical tilts. But I know you also look at external managers from the perspective of, um, you know, return generation, etc. I mean, what's your process for thinking about the opportunities when you go to look at external managers? Is that driven by a bottom-up kind of philosophy of just looking for the best managers, interesting ideas, or is there a top-down perspective of, okay, we'd like to have some allocation to these types of strategies and let's, let's us find the, find the best managers, or, or is it a, a bit of both? I think it has to be both. You know, your bottom-up is is really to, to check the boxes on 
process and people, um, you know, because that really gets you to the point of consistency. Because you can do all the top-down work that you want to do, but if they are um, you know, fair-weather managers, meaning they just sort of go with the tides and and change their strategy very quickly, uh, then it's harder to pinpoint exactly how you think you that 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 manager will perform in the market environment that you expect. So the bottom up is really important to understand processes and 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 you know kind of checking all the boxes from a um, you know from a, a management perspective. And then the top down gets really interesting, which is that it's it's a it's a know what you own and know why things perform the way that they do. And that's where we look at a lot of factor analysis because I think there were good lessons back in in 2020 and 2021 we saw it with some of our our international managers that were on the platform had these huge mega years in 2020 2021 fantastic returns that have all been unwound this year and it's because they were just riding the beta train and they were riding these booms that we had in um, you know certain kinds of asset classes and I always ask the question, okay, if that's the kind of exposure that they're giving us, is there a way that we can get it cheaper? And that's what's been exciting about the blossoming of the ETF world, which is that we can essentially we can essentially express active views through factor ETFs or specifically focused ETFs that now have enough liquidity that it's safe for us to, to be invested in them. You know, early on with a lot of these products, they were too small and didn't have the liquidity needed. So for a firm our size, we, we, you know, we couldn't really use them um, in an efficient way. But now what we're able to say is, you know, we, we actually just went through this process. We said, okay, some of our, our managers that we have in certain portfolios, um, high fee, not tax efficient, you know, mostly in a year like this where we've seen outflows, we're likely to get you know, cap gains distributions at the end of the year. Can we replicate some exposure through factor ETFs? Can we get at the same kind of return profile? And where we could, we said yes, and we've cut our fees down by two-thirds and minimized the tax impact that we're going to have at the end of the year with a much more tax-efficient structure. And it's interesting because that requires communication to your clients to say, look, like we're, we're still making active calls. We're identifying factors that we think are going to do well in this market environment, um, but we're doing it in, in just a much more efficient way. There's still a, a taboo around ETFs that you're just indexing and, you know, what, what are you adding in value? But mostly for small accounts, you know, we, you know, if you're, if you're investing accounts that are much smaller than, you know, maybe it's a side account or retirement account for a client, um, you know, using these very efficient ways to get exposure in a, in a fully allocated portfolio can be very powerful um, uh, for the client because it's just such much more of a of an efficient way to get that exposure in a lower fee way and like we said you know after after facts after t re- fee returns really do matter sure um, and in terms of the factors you're looking at is that kind of risk premium or, or what types of strategies are you thinking when you're talking about factory tfs yeah so we're we're looking at whether it's um dividend quality size okay. momentum value 
growth, all your typical kind of like the, all your typical factors and, and identifying when we think each of those factors might have, have periods of better performance okay. uh, or not. And mm -hmm. in terms of kind of quant strategies that the types of things that we, we, you know, we talk a lot about on this podcast in terms of trend following, which is kind of cross-sectional momentum, uh, managed futures or global macro strategies, are they the types of strategies, are they suitable for, for, for the clients given the, the, their, their kind of tax considerations or can they fit in, in these types of portfolios? Yeah, that's where we have to be um, very conscious of tax because a lot of these kinds of portfolios can or strategies can throw off uh, quite a bit of of tax distributions, which we we are very sensitive to. Um, but for a lot of clients, you know, it it as long as they do what they say they're going to do, uh, it's and that is that is probably the most important kind of bottoms up analysis that we do um, in in identifying these managers is a very high say do ratio, because if you're going to pay fees and have some kind of lockup um, in expectation that it's going to interact with your portfolio a certain way, um, then you better be getting that kind of interaction and 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 so we you know we keep a a, I would say a, a short leash and do a lot of due diligence on those. And, and like I said, they can be very powerful parts of portfolios from a, a, a volatility dampening approach and, and you're not giving up too much on the return upside. Um, the, the, what we just have to be aware of is a, the, the after tax impact at the same time is that if you are a very long-term investor, um, having lower volatility in your portfolio um, on a year-by-year -year basis at the same time of having that lower correlation, it may not actually be as valuable to you um, if you're not going to use those assets at all, if you don't need the liquidity. So we kind of balance those decisions. But so for our clients that, you know, will need the liquidity uh, and need and in need that kind of offsetting exposure, it's a really powerful way to get that portfolio volatility down and not have to give up too much on the on the return side of things. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm curious as well, I mean, you talked about the Nifty 50 example from um, the 1970s. And, you know, I guess that's an example of a set of stocks that were, you know, hyped up, you might say, or, you know, there was a very interesting, compelling narrative around it. Um, I mean, obviously, you're dealing with individual investors as well. Do you find that that's a challenge that people can get seduced by the narratives around these stocks and the various themes in markets? And how do you kind of help individual clients navigate that um, and keep, keep, keep focused on, on the true fundamentals? Yeah, that it, it always, you know, you don't want to rain on clients parades, but um, and it's and I, I, I don't know if it's if it's best practice to use clients as contrarian indicators. Um, um, but I mean, oftentimes, oftentimes they can be and but at the same time, look, you know, you've had. Um, you've had a, a periods of incredible performance of certain stocks that have defied the odds of the smartest guys in the room um, over the last couple of years. You know, one of the one of the arguments, and this gets back to our discussions about um, about valuation and liquidity. Um, I've been I've been making the argument really for the past. Uh, gosh, it started in in the summer 2021, um, which is that liquidity matters more than narrative. 
And this also gets back to where your returns are coming from and actually understanding the source of your returns. And that's so important, mostly when you're dealing with these kinds of stocks that can be very alluring, that come with stories attached to them, that come with narratives. If we look at the relative performance of something like ARC versus the market, so that kind of prototypical high growth narrative kind of of, of asset or IPOs versus the market or crypto versus the market even. The peak in relative performance happened in March of 2021 within a peak in the M2 money supply growth. This has never been about changing the world with technology. This has always been about liquidity. And there's wonderful narratives that can go along when you have these big rallies up and then, you know, wonderful narratives on the way down when you're fighting the world. But the reality is that you have to know the source of your returns. And I went through this battle when um, uh, I was covering the industrials and I still I, I would love to to retire the word thematic because it's very misleading. People misconstrue f the word f f uh, thematic. They, they mix it up with thinking it's secular. Secular implies a, a trend that is much more um, impervious to cycl like cycles, right? So you have compounding growth over the long run, and it's a very long-term trend. And so what happens is people buy things that are thematic, thinking that they're going to be able to just buy it, forget it, and hold it forever because this trend is so powerful, this theme is so powerful, just like the Nifty 50. When in reality, a lot of these thematic names are either just bursts of momentum, meaning that you can get exposure to them by just having a momentum ETF, um, or they are just added beta on top of some other trend. So here's the example. Robotics. Robotics was the go-to theme in 2016, 2017. Because we were going to replace all the humans, labor was expensive, and so everybody bought into this theme of robotics. The challenge is that if you look at the relative performance of the robotics ETF, meaning when it's, when it's outperforming, when it's underperforming, it is the same darn chart as the U.S. PMI, meaning that if you are in a manufacturing deceleration, you are going to underperform huge if you own the robotics sector. So the fact that it's an alluring theme and it comes with a great narrative does not mean that you can ignore the cycle. And so when we think about wanting to invest portfolios for the long run, it's so easy for people to say like, oh, I'm just going to buy the things that I think are going to be big in the out years. And that can work if you are never going to look at that portfolio, maybe, because a lot of these themes haven't materialized, whether it's things like you know, investing in water scarcity, for example. You know, it's been a popular theme for a decade and, and you know, good luck making money. But the point is we have to be aware of where we are in the cycles and, and we have to be conscious of where these returns come from. Is it because of liquidity? 
Is it because of of the manufacturing cycle and beta to that? Is it because of momentum? Um, And if you have that approach, then I think you're far better suited to invest in long run things and have a long run perspective because then you can you can avoid the fatal flaw of buying at the top and selling at the bottom. Great. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for th- that. We're, we're over an hour now, so I'm just conscious of time. We normally uh, kind of wrap up by kind of reflecting on um uh, our guests' careers and advice to have. And I guess one thing that stands out, you mentioned at the start, you, you trained as a ballet dancer um, when you were younger. Um, so I'm curious to know how how that set you up for a career in, in finance, investing, or, or when you look back, was there things you you, you, you um, benefited from from that training that, that stand to you now as an investor and a CIO? Yeah, I think there's lots of things. I think the first one, you know, because I I homeschooled myself online, it it made me a little bit more autodidactic, you know, self-learning, self-teaching, which I think is really important in in the finance realm, mostly if you're launching new coverage on anything. And I think that's what I enjoy so much about this industry, which is that you never know everything and there's always something new to to learn and get up to speed on and 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 I, I think that's the coolest thing about working in this field is that there's always something new to sink your teeth into. And I think that love of 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 learning and discovering new things kind of on my own um, uh, helped very much, you know, with the CFA studies and and you know, now and in, in, you know, kind of being a core research analyst kind of in my in my bones. Um, you know, the other one is that that, you know, things like the CFA are, are easy in comparison when you you know, we, when you're used to doing 12 hours of rehearsal a day and having shoes thrown at you. Okay. So, you know, like, <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, that discipline certainly, certainly helps. And I think the last one is just having a bit of a different perspective. I mean, I always thought I was going to be an artist of some sort and for a long time, you know, getting really deep into be, in a, being a fundamental research analyst, I kind of had to, to put that pursuit on the back burner. But I think now in my role where I get to do things like this and speak with you and, and you know, speak to other people in, in the field in different mediums, um, it's like everything has come full circle, which is just the absolute coolest. I, I pinch myself. I, I think I have the coolest job in the world. And so to be able to be an analyst and have a performative kind of outlet that that always has been my itch because of become, being a dancer and all these things uh, is, is really fun um and i like that i have a different background i think that's helpful from from an analytical standpoint you kind of you know you hope that you can look at the world a little bit differently um at at times though occasionally you find yourself in consensus yeah uh, <laughs> no, well, it's, it's, well, and you, can't, you can't be contrarian all the time um i so i mean taking that a step further then not everybody is going to start off training as a ballet dancer ballet dancer and self-schooling but what, what would you say as advice to aspiring cios um you know in terms of things to do or interesting things to read or anything that's particularly influenced you from from that perspective um, in the course of your career Oh yes, uh, I, I should put together a, a, a companion book list of some of my of my favorite reads. I mean, I think of of books like. Uh, uh 
Mark Blythe's austerity, um, Steve Rusciuto's disequilibrium. Uh, there was, uh, I think it was Sebastian Malaby, The More Money Than God, uh, The Smartest Guys in the Room, The One But In Running. All the, there's tons of books that have been so uh, important and, and informative. And I, I try to be as, as much of a voracious reader as I can be. Um, then, you know, the other piece of advice, and this is something that I give to a lot of the, the young women that I coach but I think it's it's applicable for everybody is that sometimes it's it's our um, it's in our nature to want to seek out uh, situations and opportunities where we are like everybody else meaning we might look like them or have similar backgrounds to them but uh, maybe it's because I found myself as one of only two women that covered, industrials and you know I'd sit in a room and it'd be 40 dudes and me mm. um, I found that there was great power and and opportunity in seeking out areas where you are different because if you can combine being different having a different background with a certain level of aptitude you know where you are additive to that conversation that environment the whole thing um, I think it's like swimming downstream and I would encourage people um, you know, mostly, like I said, is the young women that that I that I coach and speak to, is you know when it comes to choosing what you want to cover in your research analysis, don't cover handbags. <laughs> <laughs> you know, cover 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 utility stocks, cover like oil and gas stocks, cover something that people don't expect you to do, and and um, you you have a far greater likelihood of 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 carving out a niche for yourself and finding yourself in scenarios where you can stand out. And I think standing out um, is is important, uh, mostly if you're, you know, if you're going in these, you know, trying to go for these larger roles, um, you know, because you have to have a different voice, you have to have something to say. So um, I find I find it invigorating every time I see myself as I, I, I look around and I'm like, oh, I'm some, something one of these doesn't belong. <laughs> and I, you know, I think it's I think it's just darn fun. And, um, you know, occasionally it's 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 frustrating. But but for the most part, it, I, I, I've just had, it also helps that I've also worked with great people. And all through my career, I've had people take me under their wing and show me the ropes and be supportive and helpful. And so I, you know, it's, it, that, that helps a lot. So work for good people and be nice. <laughs> great stuff. Well, that's mm-hmm. interesting and wise advice, I think. Um, it's been mm-hmm. great having you on. We've, we've gone well over an hour. So, um, Thank you very much uh, for taking the time to, to join us today. Um, and with that, that, I'll hand it back to Niels. Thank you so much, Alan and Cameron, for a super fun conversation, full of energy, and where you managed to cover a lot of ground. There are many things that stood out to me, not least the amazing career path that Cameron has taken. And I fully agree that doing things differently can help you think outside the box, which is very important in our line of business. I found Cameron's observations about the usefulness or lack thereof of correlations quite interesting, as well as her thoughts on the importance of knowing where you are in the liquidity cycle and how this really drives valuations. Also, Cameron's three reasons why you would want to pay more than 20 times earnings uh, was very interesting to me. And maybe to round things off, I love the question that Cameron believes the Fed should ask themselves and how this answer will dominate the future path of interest rates. But of course, there are so many more gems in this conversation. That's it for this episode. Uh, Make sure you go and follow Cameron and Alan's work, 
because as you can tell from today's conversation, it is so important that you understand what's going on from a global macro point of view in order to allocate capital well. And we really look forward to sharing many more of these insights in our series as it continues. From Alan and me, thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you on the next episode. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.